Welcome to the show, everybody. Um, as per usual, I will be entertaining the shiznit out of you. We got a brand new Joe Biden ad that we're going to make fun of. It is a thousand degrees in this studio. I am not feeling the temperature in this studio. It feels like I'm in a sauna. It's so bad that I turned on the AC, but the AC hasn't, like, kicked on yet. It also might be because I ate, uh, or I'm sorry, I drank a large cup of coffee, and that, like, increased the old body temperature at a time when I didn't need it. Um, But anyway, there's a brand new Joe Biden ad that's out, and uh, kind of amazed that half of the people I follow on Twitter were like, man, this ad is devastating, and then the other half were like, this is the worst ad I've ever seen. Um, I will weigh in, and I will be the ultimate arbiter of what is true when it comes to this ad. Um, I don't know if my videos are in order, and that might be a little bit of an issue today. But whatever, it is what it is. We also have Hillary Clinton going on Howard Stern's show, and um, <laughs> oh, being classic Hillary Clinton and blaming Bernie Sanders for her failures. She won't stop, man. It's like Diddy, can't stop, won't stop. Um, And then we also have glaring omissions of Bernie Sanders' existence from this race. There was a PBS uh, News election overview that was done. And surprise, surprise, Bernie Sanders is just left out of it. So there is a lot of stuff in today's show. And um, we're not going to stop until we get through all of it. How do you like them apples? Oh, I just fixed my chair. So 
Somehow my angles get all messed up. You get up for three seconds and the angles get messed up. Anyway, all right, without further ado, let's get started. We're going to do that with the queen herself. Here we go. Hillary Clinton went on Howard Stern's radio show, and she ended up taking some shots at Bernie Sanders. It's very clear that she still harbors resentment for Bernie. She, to some extent, blames Bernie for her loss. Add that to the list of other stuff she blames, like uh, James Comey, for example, and Russia. I mean, the list is ever-growing. Sexism. Fill in the blank with whatever, you know, the excuse du jour is. So let's take a look at what she said, and then I have a lot to say about it. Do you just ever want to just lay in bed and say, fuck this, I'm getting out. I mean, I am going to go into full seclusion, and they're never going to hear from me again. No. First of all, um, that would only delight my adversaries, Um, (laughs) so I would never do that. But secondly, I have this unique perspective, some of which we've been talking about today. I have a unique perspective. I have a particular understanding of the Russian threat. And it's not going to only be Russia. I mean, so you must be laying awake at I night. I do. I worry a lot. Because you know how I, what the shenanigans yes, are. I worry. I worry a lot. You've negotiated with them. You've seen secret intelligence. I have. And you know that you know. There's these guys who phone from Nigeria who phone your home and somehow finagle six grand out of you by doing that. Yeah. And they're brilliant at yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine what's going on when Vladimir Putin sits there and plans against the United States. Well, but you know, you can read the, the indictments against the Russians. And I, you know, a lot of people didn't pay attention to it, but it's very uh, informative and scary. Do you mean the Mueller report? Yeah, the yeah. indictments. Okay. The report itself, I think, is also worth reading. But if you read the indictments, you know, basically they were like, hey, let's do everything we can to elect Donald Trump. I mean, that's, those, those are quotes. Those are taken, words. They those said. are words. Yeah. That taken, and also said Bernie Sanders, but, you know, that's another, for another day. Do we day. hate Bernie Sanders? What? Do we hate Bernie Sanders? No, I don't hate anybody. Bernie could have endorsed you quicker. Uh, he could have. He hurt me. There's no doubt about it. He hurt me. But going back to the indictments, because that's right. what's really important. Have you ever spoken to Bernie about that? No. No. You haven't I mean, talked to him? I don't talk to him. Yeah, I mean, we did. And we finally endorsed me and all that. But and you're upset with him? No, disappointed. Disappointed. Okay. okay. So, and, and I hope he doesn't do it again to whoever gets the nomination. Right. Once is enough. We, yeah. got, we have to, yeah, we have to right join now. forces. Yeah. And, and, you know, people could speculate and, and have some good reason to speculate about how bad it might be with uh, Trump in the White House. Now we know. There's no guesswork. We know. Right. And, and we know that given his personality and his, his, his rage um, against anyone who questions him, Lord knows what he might try to do. So it's time to retire him. She's red-baiting Bernie Sanders. She's saying Bernie Sanders uh, was a favorite of the Russians. The Russians wanted to get Bernie Sanders elected. You know, I hate to make this an I told you so moment, but I told you all along when Russiagate started and throughout the entire thing, I was telling you that uh, don't be so gleeful to hop on this bandwagon where you act like, you know, there's some sort of Russian menace that's over the overarching narrative for all of politics, and they're secretly controlling everything because 
It's going to boomerang around to the left. It absolutely will. And in one week, we saw it happen twice. Um, They just had an article in some goofy establishment outlet saying the same thing about Jeremy Corbyn in the U.K. That, uh, you know, Russia wants him. So Russia wants him. Russia wants Bernie Sanders. Isn't it convenient that apparently Russia always wants the politicians that are opposing what the neoliberal establishment in the U.S. wants? Isn't that interesting? It's almost like it's just a cheap scare tactic and smear, which is exactly what it is. Now, by the way, Bernie Sanders gave 39 speeches for Hillary Clinton in 13 states in 2016. The dude did 39 speeches in 13 states. I think that Bernie Sanders, some people go after Bernie Sanders for the opposite thing, which is, oh my God, I can't believe you endorsed Hillary at all. I actually wasn't surprised by that, even though they 100% cheated Bernie. I still wasn't surprised by Bernie endorsing Hillary because he really believed that Donald Trump is the greater evil. In his mind, he knows, okay, now we're to the lesser evilism battle. As much as we want to hope that Gary Johnson or Jill Stein could win this election, that's not going to happen. So he said, of the two options, this is the lesser evil. And he went and gave speeches for her, and this is how she repays him. I mean, could you imagine doing 39 speeches for somebody, going all across the country, trying your best to get them elected, and this is how they respond? You want to talk about bitter and ungrateful? I mean, what a loathsome person, man. What a loathsome person. There was another story that broke about a month ago that apparently Hillary's team was really mad at Bernie Sanders because there were some instances where he needed to get you know, from one speech to another, and he needed to use the, Hil- the Hillary campaign's private jet. And apparently people in her campaign were mad because they were saying, we got to let Bernie use the jet, but that jet is reserved for Katy Perry. They were mad at him because he needed to get from one Hillary speech to another Hillary speech fast, and he had to use the jet, and they're like, unreasonable. It is unbelievable. She is, like, historically entitled. Wow. So, by the way, when she talks about, um, oh, the Russian threat, the indictments, uh, read the indictments. The indictments were for clickbait troll farms that solely existed to make money. It wasn't the Russian government doing those things. That's where, and and you know what she's basing this on? Like, oh my God, they wanted to get Bernie Sanders elected. You remember that goofy ad of, of like a cartoon version of Bernie Sanders who's muscular and he's like posing? That's what she's talking about. She's saying that's evidence that Vladimir Putin wanted to get Bernie Sanders elected. No, it was a, a, a clickbait troll farm and the indictments came out, and we all knew their indictments were meaningless because it's not like the people who they were indicting were ever going to see a day in the U.S. court anyway because they're not in the United States of America. It was all a dog and pony show. Are you kidding me? What a joke this is. Now, I'm going to go a step further, too, though. The idea that, like, oh, my God, if Russia prefers a certain candidate in a U.S. election, obviously you need to support the other candidate that they don't favor. Why? How? Based on what? Why? Why? Because I got news for you, Hillary. Remember when you were Secretary of State? What administration were you working for? That's right, the Obama administration. You know who Vladimir Putin favored in both elections for Barack Obama? Him. 
They wanted him over John McCain, and they wanted him over Mitt Romney. Why? Because Obama said in no uncertain terms, I don't want to be an adversary of Russia. I want to work towards peace. He famously made fun of Mitt Romney when Mitt Romney said, um, oh, we're in a new Cold War, and Russia's our greatest threat. And Obama was like, the 1980s called, they want their foreign policy back. Are you kidding me? Al-Qaeda's our biggest threat. Jihadists are our biggest threat. Russia's not our biggest threat. Why don't you work with them? Why don't you talk to them? Why don't you negotiate with them? Why don't you do that? Now, I, Kyle Kalinske, agree with Obama in both of his terms. He was correct about that assessment. He's taking the right position. Do you know why Vladimir Putin favored Obama over Mitt Romney and Obama over McCain? It's very simple. He doesn't want to go to war with the United States of America because he knows how that's going to end. And John McCain and Mitt Romney wanted to escalate, wanted to raise tensions, wanted to make it more likely that we end up going to war. So in the case of, of Trump, yeah, he said some things on the campaign trail. Like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we got along with Russia? And so, of course, Vladimir Putin is going to favor Trump for that reason. Because any reasonable human being that doesn't want to maybe go to World War III is going to say, yeah, moving in the direction of peace is better than moving in the direction towards war. And, of course, Hillary was out there saying the exact opposite stuff, saying she might respond in a military way for cyber attacks, saying, you know, we need a no-fly zone in Syria, which means troops on the ground in Syria, which means Russian planes are already in Syria at, at the request of Syria, so we might have to shoot down Russian planes. Boom, World War III. Are you kidding me? So uh, even that notion of, like, the, the Russian threat, Oh, my God. They, I, know, I know what they're capable of. They wanted, they wanted Trump. They wanted Bernie. They never did anything, anything that was, you know, to get Bernie Sanders elected. Nothing at all. You're talking about uh, troll farms, and, and you're trying to make it seem like it's this grand Putin plot. Absolutely absurd. But to the extent that they favored Bernie and Trump, and they favored Obama over Romney, so what? So what? She acts like that's like, drop the mic, walk out. Obviously, all oh, you have to vote for me because Russia wants my, the other people. It's just so thoughtless, man. And then there's, there's other clues in there as to her mindset, which is really telling. Like, oh... Do you ever want to pack it in, uh, Howard Stern asked? By the way, great interview, Howard. Very tough questions. It's obvious that he's, like, you know, fanboying over her. Um, and she said, no, going away would delight my adversary. So look at the mindset. The mindset is, like, got to show my haters. Like, what are you, a rapper? I got all these haters, bro, and I got to show them. What are you, a child? Like, that's so silly. You ask Bernie Sanders why he's involved in politics to this day and why he's fighting to this day. We don't have Medicare for all. What are you talking about? We don't have free college. We have over a trillion dollars in student loan debt. Are you kidding me? We have to do something to stop climate change. We need a Green New Deal. We need to bring people a living wage. People are working full time. They don't make enough money to survive. You ask Hillary, why are you involved in politics? Because my haters want me gone. With every passing day, she further proves and shows how it is she lost to Donald Trump. And she really, no matter what she says, she hasn't come to terms with that. She hasn't grappled with the fact that, like, maybe it was me completely. Like, maybe I'm the problem. She hasn't grappled with that. Not at all. She's still, every time she talks in public, it's a blame everything but myself tour. To the point where she's even pointing the finger at somebody who gave 39 speeches for her in 13 states in 2016. And she's saying, oh, that Russia also wanted him and was trying to get him elected. Oh, man. By the way, they did the Pied Piper strategy, just so you understand. You know what that is? This is what we learned from WikiLeaks. 
They wanted to elevate Trump because they thought there's no way Hillary could lose to Trump. I'm not kidding about that. So there was a time when all of Hillary's staffers would go out on TV and be like, Who, oh, oh, yeah, Trump, yeah, Trump. Trump's the one that we're afraid of. Trump's the one who looks like he's leading the pack. Trump's the serious candidate. They were doing that as a ploy because they thought, well, obviously, if it's Trump, we're going to destroy him. So they did everything they could to boost Trump, and then he won. These are the political geniuses we're talking about here. These are the, the, the grand strategists and the people who think they see the whole chessboard with evil Russia making their moves. It's unbelievable how out of touch she is. Um, and then the final point is, actually two final points. One is just Howard Stern is so obnoxious and annoying. Do we hate Bernie Sanders? What do you mean we? What do you mean we? What are you, married to Hillary? What do you mean we? Do we hate Bernie Sanders? Remember when there was a time that Howard Stern was like, you know, a counterculture icon? You know, like he was this outsider doing edgy stuff. And now he's like sucking up to Hillary Clinton in the grossest ways possible. And he that knows absolutely nothing about politics. And he's just a standard establishment Democrat. Maybe it's because he's got $17 quadrillion in the bank and he doesn't want Bernie to tax it more. Um, now, the actual final point is there, Hillary drops a hint at the end there. Hillary says, I hope he doesn't do it again, talking about Bernie. And what she's referring to is, oh, he took a little bit to endorse me. By the way, it wasn't very long that he took to endorse her. And I'm happy he took a while because he was extracting concessions. She signed on to his, um, I believe it was free college plan, because he held out. And he was like, you know, she was like, basically, okay, what do you need to endorse me? And he was like, and this is where a normal politician who's part of Washington, D.C. will be like, I want a cabinet position. I want to be secretary of state. I want to be labor secretary, uh, whatever it might be. This is where a normal politician goes into careerist mode. Bernie's not a normal politician. So when she says to him, oh, what do you want to endorse me? You know what he says? Free college. I want you to sign on to my free college bill. And I have no doubt that he was actually probably trying to say Medicare for all and a bunch of other stuff. So he wanted policy concessions because he actually cares. Um, But she says, I hope he doesn't do it again. Doesn't do it again? What do you mean? She means, oh, whenever there's an eventual Democratic nominee, I really hope he comes out and immediately supports him. But hold on. You do know he's still in the race, right? You do know he's number two in the polls, right? You do know the one in front of him is melting brain Joe Biden, right? You do know a poll just came out that has him leading in California, right? This idea, this smug idea of, well, obviously he's not going to be the nominee. Based on what? Based on what? Based on what? Based on nothing but your establishment bias. Based on the fact that you're still convinced to this day that neoliberal corporatism is the way to go. Even though you lost to Donald Trump. Even though we have a movement candidate who actually has people who care. Grassroots activists. Boots on the ground. People fighting for him to get elected. He's got the most uh, donors in history at this point. Are you kidding me? But no, the, the assertion is, well, obviously, I hope he doesn't do it again. It's obviously not going to be him. He's not going to be the nominee. Either total idiots and totally out of lockstep with the times, that's what I think it is, or maybe something more nefarious, because we know that the DNC was just an arm of the Clinton campaign the last time around. Is she still controlling the DNC? Is she saying, hey, we're going to steal it from him again? I don't know. I'll leave that up to you. But it really is amazing, her ability. to Every time she opens her mouth, she pisses off more and more people. By the way, she is a historic figure in this sense. Usually when a politician loses an election or they go away, 
and they go away. Or, like, even if they're president and then they go away, their approval rating bounces back because absence makes the heart grow fonder. So the idea of Hillary Clinton is better than the reality of Hillary Clinton to people. In the same way that George Bush in a recent poll was above 50%. Now, that's insane. It's insane. But he was gone long enough where people were like, I don't know, I guess. Yeah, sure. He's not terrible. He was terrible. But this is what happens with the public. Hillary Clinton is a historic figure. She's been out of the public eye since losing the election. Every now and then she pops back in the news. Her approval rating to this day, it's now lower than it was when she lost. 36% is her approval rating today. I wonder why that is. Could it be because uh, she blames everybody else for all of her failures and she has no gratitude for people who tried their hardest to get her elected and she still doesn't understand basic things about politics and she still doesn't understand the times and she still doesn't understand that it's time for political revolution, it's time for top-down reform? Whatever the reason is, the people are right. She's beyond insufferable. Okay, next. Um, so Bernie Sanders is being omitted also by PBS, who's they're usually not a terrible outlet. But watch this. So I want to give credit for this segment to Nathan J. Robinson from Current Affairs. Uh, By the way, check out Current Affairs magazine if you haven't. Current Affairs is amazing. It's a great lefty outlet. They have really thoughtful takes. Nathan J. Robinson does a wonderful job. Um, But Nathan J. Robinson sparked this segment, as well as credit to David Dole from The Rational National, who also has a great show that you should check out. Um, PBS did an overview of the Democratic primary. And they have some glaring omissions here. What David Dole from the Rational National did is he clipped out, it was a long segment, and then he clipped out the segment so you could see all the mentions of the different candidates. And in their grand overview of the Democratic primary, they don't say a word about Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, or Bernie Sanders. There are twists, turns, two in and two out, with two months to go until the first votes. Yamiche Alcindor brings us up to speed on the race for the White House. This is a Democratic field in flux. Candidates on the rise are shoring up weaknesses. Mass incarceration must end. It's that simple. Candidates whose campaigns are lagging are looking for a second wind. And still other candidates are dropping out entirely. Today, it was Montana Governor Steve Bullock who left the race. Yesterday, it was former Pennsylvania Congressman Joe Sestak, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former Vice President Joe Biden. The Hawkeye State is also key for California Senator Kamala Harris. Meanwhile, a new campaign ad for Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar in Iowa was a focus, too, for New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. The tenor was different at a weekend Iowa stop for Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. 
Joe Biden is ahead in all the national polling and has had a pretty consistent lead. But a judge's problem, as you pointed out, has been Elizabeth Warren's surge. And, and then we're talking about Mike Bloomberg, who's been spending all this money. I mean, he spent $50 million. That's the rule, not the exception to the rule. The rule is don't talk about Bernie, don't talk about Yang, don't talk about Tulsi. The reason why this segment is important is it's actually indicative of the rest of the coverage in mainstream media. Now, yes, sometimes they mention Bernie because he's polling second, so they have to. But they try their best. It's like they bend over backwards to not mention him. Now, why? Why? Because that's an important question. Listen, it all goes back to Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent. It's not a smoke-filled backroom conspiracy. It's that the decisions are really made in the hiring process. They pick people at all these outlets who they know will not rock the boat and will go with the default lazy establishment narrative. And so in the eyes of all these people, they genuinely believe like, well, I mean, sure, we might not cover Bernie as much. We might omit him from our overview, but does he really have a chance? No, he's not like, he's not serious. He's not a serious candidate. Because everybody around me has always been saying my entire life in the D.C. bubble that this, he's got no shot. So, what, you know, I'm going to give him coverage that syncs up with that, that reflects that reality. Tulsi and Yang, are you kidding me? Yang. Who's he? Random entrepreneur running for president? He's not a serious candidate. Tulsi. I mean, we all know. This is their mindset. Their mindset is like, well, she's definitely not a serious candidate, and also she loves dictators. So, like, ridiculous. Ridiculous. Step aside. This is the mindset. It's the same reason why Wolf Blitzer is on CNN for hours a day. Because it's like, okay, put him out there. Blitzer will always read the teleprompter. Blitzer won't rock the boat. Blitzer won't say anything remotely interesting. And so you get this reflection of reality that's the reflection that the 1% want you to believe, the reflection that the corporations want you to believe. But they have a problem this time. The problem is the anti-establishment candidates are real contenders. I mean, obviously Bernie is. He's number two in the polls. But Yang was topping Kamala in the polls. Kamala just dropped out. I mean, think about that. They didn't mention Yang in that once. They didn't mention Bernie in that once. They mentioned Kamala a bunch of times, and she, she dropped out. She just dropped out. Now, obviously, this was before she dropped out. But what does that tell you? Even a campaign that has obviously imploded and has no message, while still a serious candidacy, how, why, based on what? Because that's the lazy assumption of the people who are part of the establishment. So it's, the bias is astounding, but I should be thanking them, and David Dole should be thanking them, and all the lefty outlets should be thanking them, because they've left open this lane for any truth tellers to step in and keep it real and talk about the candidates who are actually interesting. I said it before, I'll say it again. If I can't succinctly explain why I think you're running for president, you're ridiculous. You shouldn't be in the race. You asked me why Jane running, UBI. You asked me why Tulsi's running and regime change wars. You asked me why Bernie's running, Medicare for all and the corruption, fight back against income inequality. Very clear reasons that are like the main themes of their campaign. You asked me why Kamala was running, because she wants Kamala elected. That's what I say. I, I don't know what's her main policy thing. She's been all over the place. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. 
The Onion went after her the other day and made that same headline. So, like, Kamala promises to continue her dream of a little bit of this, a little bit of that. <laughs> if I can't name why you're running, then obviously you're just in it for the self-aggrandizement. You just want the title of being president. But what's amazing is that without fail, that's who mainstream media pushes out there, is the ones who believe in nothing, who will fight for nothing, who just want basic little tweaks around the edges of the status quo, and they think that's enough. Well, why is it that the other candidates are resonating? Because that's what the people actually want, is they want real change. Guys, they elected Donald Trump. Donald Trump won the presidency in this country. Obviously, any people who rolled the dice on that guy, obviously they're looking for, like, serious, serious change. So when you have candidates who are really going to shake stuff up, they definitely deserve to be covered like they're serious. And also, let's just be honest here, that the numbers on their own reflect that these people are serious. And boy, is it telling when, he, when the numbers show it and they still ignore them. That says so much. It really does. And uh, I have to say that even though I don't think it's purposeful, it ends up being the exact kind of strategy that one would need to try to take down these candidates. It really does. The strategy is, indifference. And when it came to Trump, it's funny because Trump got a lot of media coverage, but it was mostly negative coverage. But like half the negative stories were just from a silly angle and they only helped Trump. But, you know, they may have caught on that endless outrage coverage might benefit these candidates. So then what do you do in the face of that situation? Just don't cover them at all. Be indifferent. So if people don't know, if you're a casual follower of politics and you don't follow it too closely, you might not even know that some of these candidates are running. That's the best case scenario to them. But the disrespect that's put on their name, and that's why they have to work twice as hard as everybody else. They have to go around the system. They have to use new modes of communication. And that's where new media comes in. That's where independent media comes in, social media. Um, That's the way you have to get out the word, because they're never going to give you a fair shake in mainstream media. Even PBS. PBS is not as bad as the others, but even them, even they've fallen victim to this lazy default establishment bias, which determines, predetermines who's serious and who's not. Well, they've been wrong many times, and they will continue to be wrong. Remember, guys, CNN in their power rankings, you know who their top two were? This wasn't even that long ago. Number one, Kamala Harris. Number two, Beto O'Rourke. Both of them didn't even make it to Iowa. Perhaps these guys don't know what the hell they're talking about. Okay, moving on. Let's talk a little bit about Kamala Harris. So as you all know by now, Kamala Harris dropped out of the presidential race. Um, We briefly discussed it on Kyle and Corrin, but I wanted to dive into it a little more here. So the question is why? Why did she drop out? How did she get to this point? Um, Well, obviously she imploded in the polls. She had next to no support. You have uh, Andrew Yang, who's an outsider candidate who's getting no media coverage. He's polling way higher than Kamala Harris. So she dropped out. What led to the downfall? 
Well, the first thing is obvious. The first thing is Tulsi Gabbard exposing her on the debate stage. I mean, she really did a number on her. If you go back and watch that, Tulsi Gabbard just lands shot after shot after shot, and Kamala has no good response. You want to know why? Because Tulsi was focusing on the policies. Tulsi was focusing on her record. And she was saying, you have a terrible record as a prosecutor, and here are the things that you did. And Kamala's reaction was effectively, Assad, you like Assad. And it didn't land. And then she embarrassingly went on mainstream media afterwards and said, you know, not to sound, you know, conceited here, but I'm a top-tier candidate. Oh, God. (laughs) I do believe she said that immediately after she got her ass handed to her on a silver platter by Tulsi. Hilarious. Um, So Tulsi exposed her. I think that led to people looking at her like, whoa. Certainly that decreased her support among the people because maybe a lot of these people didn't know about her record as prosecutor, and now they did. Um, But then also Tulsi destroying her and her not having good responses led to the media kind of recognizing that, oh, she's really not strong here. She's not mounting a good good counter to what Tulsi's saying. So it even led the media to kind of back off her a little bit in their relentless pushing of her, which to that point they were doing that. Um, Now, the other reason why she ended up imploding is, and I'm not sure how many of you guys remember this, but if you go back, she used to try to copy Bernie. She bragged about being the first one to sign on to his Medicare for All legislation. In the first debate or two, she was decidedly taking the left flank position on a variety of issues. She was doing the old Elizabeth Warren move of like, oh, in the debates, whenever Medicare for All comes up, side with Bernie and argue on his team, and then that'll make people like you. And it does. It does. It makes people like you. And so in the case of, in the case of Kamala, she did it like the first two debates or so. That's what she did. She was like trying to rep that lefty lane. And then, listen, one can speculate as to why she abandoned that, but she certainly abandoned that. Is it because she herself thought, okay, now let me go in, that, in, the, in a more right-wing direction, a more centrist, corporatist direction? Or what I think is more likely is her staff. Her staff convinced her, okay, 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 now you got some decent numbers. You know, you're, you're peaking after that first debate. Well, now you're a serious candidate, and what do serious candidates do? Tone it down. No more lefty revolution stuff. No, no, no. Tone it down. Safe. Now we play it safe. Now we play it safe. And when you play it safe, you don't talk about the big, bold policy ideas. You don't argue from a left-wing perspective. And immediately when she decided to play it safe and be more corporatist, started plummeting. That definitely led to her downfall as well. And that's an underreported part of it. The media will never tell you this side of the story because in their mind, it's the exact opposite. They want to never give lefties, lefties credit, and they want to always give the status quo defenders credit. Even though what happened with Kamala flies directly in that narrative, they would never acknowledge that. Um, so when she made this transition, see, this is the fascinating part to me. She made this transition from trying to sound like Bernie to just sounding like a standard corporate nothing politician like Hillary, and then she started tanking in the polls, and she recognized that. And so they kind of went into panic mode. Oh, boy, what do we do to get back to where we were and to try to get back and and become number one? And 
they made a decision, a clear decision. And the decision was, okay, okay, okay. Well, now we got to thread this needle. How do we look like lefty while also being serious, which really is corporate? How do we thread that needle where we maintain our serious credibility, but also can appear leftier than now as well? And what answer did they come up with? Go full social justice warrior. And that's why in, you know, the latter debates, she went, it, it was insanely cringeworthy. She would refer, whenever talking about, you know, what, what would you do as president, she talks about the idea of a president in the abstract and, and says, instead of like what they should do, she says like what she should do. This weird decision that she made to always refer to the president as using female pronouns in a weird attempt to like, make people go, oh, I like that she said that. It was just weird. It was just weird. She said, it, she said it multiple times in awkward ways, and everybody was like, why is she doing that? <laughs> like, I don't understand what she's doing. That's just weird. Like, in areas where it doesn't fit, she's like, herself, she. And it's like, wh- why are you doing this? Um, and there were many examples of going full social justice warrior, most famously – Uh, trying to repeatedly press Elizabeth Warren to support banning Donald Trump from Twitter. (laughs) Like, of all the issues she picked, like, she could have picked from to outflank everybody on the left, the one she decided to go with was deplatform the president because he says bad things. And you could tell Elizabeth Warren was like, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are you doing this? And Elizabeth Warren was basically like, no, I'm not going to support banning him, but uh, what people should do is look at who's accepting money from social media companies. And that's her way of saying, like, she's accusing me of being weak on these, co- on these companies. She's corrupt and bought by them. So that's the point that she was making subtly. She could have been more clear about it, but um, it was issue after issue after issue. It was full goofy social justice warrior, and it doesn't land. That doesn't land doesn't land. You can literally be as left as you want, and it's a good strategy to get elected on economic issues. As soon as you step into, like, authoritarian leftism stuff, um, where you get obsessed with, like, race or gender, we see the results, man. People think, oh, oh, I'm not for that. And that's what happened with Kamala. They went into panic mode. They had the identity crisis. What should we do? How do we maintain lefty credibility while also maintaining our serious candidate status? Go left on the social issues as hard as you possibly can, but stay pro-status quo on the economic issues, and voila, she totally imploded. Now, the other point, and Cenk Uger made this point as well on his show, is the donor class pulled their support. At a certain point, they realized, oh, she's not going to work. And so in a similar way to Scott Walker in 2016, when Scott Walker wasn't popping off in the polls and he was running for president in 2016, they gave him that phone call and were like, all right, dude, we need you to wrap it up. We're going to coalesce around somebody. And remember, we've gone through this a thousand times, but first it was like Jeb Bush, right? Jeb Bush. And then he imploded. Then the establishment was like Marco Rubio, right? Rubio, Rubio. Then he imploded. Then they were like Kasich? Then he imploded, and then they were like, all right, fine, we'll take Cruz. And then he imploded, and then Trump was the last one standing. You're, I think you're going to see a similar dynamic on the Democratic side. 
You absolutely are, because it it's already happening. Kamala had her moment in the sun, then she imploded, and she got the call from the donors. They're like, hey, listen, we need you to wrap it up, skis, and we're going to have to coalesce behind somebody. And they'll do that. They'll still keep trying to find who's the strongest link. They're still hanging on for dear hope that uh, Klobuchar has a shot. They're still hanging on for Mayor Pete. They like the idea of Biden, even though they're also unsure that he can hang on. They think he's weak, which is why they have the insurance policies of Mayor Pete and Klobuchar. Now Bloomberg jumping in the race. They would love a Bloomberg presidency. So they're going to do Watch. You'll see, man. This is what they're going to do. Um, and then the response from the Kamala campaign is really telling. And actually, to be fair, it's not just the Kamala campaign. It's also the media. I've now seen multiple articles where their reaction is, oh, the reason she had to drop out and she ended up failing is because racism and sexism. I'm at a loss for words. You really think that's why she lost? Racism and sexism. You think that's why she lost? It's got nothing to do with race. It's got nothing to do with gender. It has to do with the fact that she's an unappealing candidate who's running um, a totally confused campaign. She is what happens when you try to find what you believe while on the campaign trail. She's not going into it believing anything. She's like, I don't know. I'll say whatever you want. Just make me president. This is what happens. So it's the old playbook, man. They went right back to, well, it's got to be the racism and the sexism. And she said, Kamala said, to be fair to Kamala, she's not playing that card. Some people in her campaign are, but the media, I've seen op-eds where they say, oh, that's obviously what it is. Um, she said, oh, I'm not raising the money that I need to raise, and since we aren't funded by billionaires, what am I going to do? i got to drop out. That's basically what she said, which is hilarious because Kamala is actually one of the top recipients of billionaire money. <laughs> He has more billionaire donors than the majority of the other people on the debate stage. But on her way out, she's like, it's a hint that, it's like, I'm going to still try to pretend to be populist to some extent now. She may have recognized that the whole, like, centrist experiment imploded. She may have realized that the whole SJW, you know, perspective imploded, that that's not how you win elections. And now on the way out the door, it's like a hat tip to, okay, I guess the populism was the way to go. And so she's like, me? It's because I'm too grassroots, bro. That's why I got to drop out. Not enough. I don't take billionaire support. And some of these other people in the race, you know what I'm saying? They take it. So what am I going to do? Except you did take it. Quite a bit of it. <laughs> so anyway, um, that's what happened with Kamala Harris. Good riddance. See, I've never been more happy to be wrong about a prediction in my life. Because if you guys remember, I thought she was going to hang around and be there where it's her and Bernie at the end. I was wrong. I was dead wrong. I'm happy I was wrong, but I was wrong. And it's because at the time, I thought, at the time, she was doing the fake lefty thing. And I thought, well, she's going to keep doing this, obviously, and so it's going to keep working. That's what I thought. And I was wrong. because she did, and, and here's the main point, guys. I overestimated her political acumen. I thought it, they would have obviously recognized being a fake lefty was working for them, so they would keep pretending to be leftist. But they didn't. I think her idiot advisors got to her and, and she was more than willing to go along with them. And, uh, okay, yeah, no, sure. Now that we're serious, let's be more centrist. So I couldn't have foreseen that. I couldn't have predicted that. So that I was wrong about that. But I will say there's something I was right about, though, which I'm 
very happy about, which is when the media kept trying to say she was the front runner, I was like, no, that's not based on anything. It's not based on anything. There's no empirical data to back up that she's a front runner. And I was constantly saying that even though I thought she was going to be one of the last ones standing, the media was overhyping her and saying she's better than she actually is. And her standing was already like a front runner and a leader when she, that wasn't true. I was saying that wasn't true all along. In particular, I called out um, Chris Saliza for doing his power rankings. And I swear to God, his number one on the list was Kamala. His number two was Beto. Both of them are now out of the race. He had Bernie Sanders at number seven. Number seven. He's got Cory Booker ahead of Bernie Sanders. And what did I say? That's totally made up. It's not true. It's what he wants to be true. It's not what actually is. And that's that old establishment trick of like, I'm going to pretend like I'm calling balls and strikes, but really I'm going to try to mold public opinion into believing the thing that I want to be true. Good riddance, Kamala, and thank you, Tulsi, is how I'll end this segment. Okay, next. President Trump at it again, boys, boys and girls. President Trump has now made a habit of openly admitting to war crimes in press conferences. Here's the most recent iteration of that. He just says it. He just says it. I, I have to, every time you hear this, I need you to do the intellectual exercise of what if it's somebody else? What if it's some other country casually saying that and they're doing it to us? Imagine China was like, well, yeah, we took our, our warships and went to the Gulf of Mexico and seized oil fields in Texas, but... We didn't want the Americans reaping the profits of that oil. What do you mean? There's no problem with that. I mean, the Americans are war criminals. Look at what they did in Iraq. They killed minimum 200,000 civilians in an illegal and offensive war. They had a, a, a torture regime. What are you talking about? They do a terrorist program known as the drone program, and they're massacring civilians left and right. We just covered a story the other day. They killed a, a, a brand-new mother who was leaving the hospital, just gave birth. They did a drone strike on her car, killed at least five civilians. That number is going to go up, by the way. It always does. Imagine China was like, well, obviously, we're not, we're not going to let the Americans take the profits of the oil. Are you crazy? No, we're going we're gonna to seize it. Duh. That's the way I like it. That's, what he, that's the way I like it. That's the way you like it. 
You're openly admitting to war crimes. Syria is a sovereign country. You can't just go in there. Um, we're just going to take that. We're just gonna, all the oil fields? Ours. That's ours. That's not the way it works. You can never again, ever, ever, say anything about, we support the rule of law. Yay! Law and order, good sir. And it's kind of hilarious because Trump ran on that. He ran on, I'm the law and order president. Except international law, in which case you say that doesn't apply to us at all. We're above the law. Which is it? Are you a law and order guy or are you saying you're above the law? Which is it? That's contradictory. You have to pick one. Law for everybody else, but not for me. No, no, no. For me, it doesn't apply. And they've done this time and time again. Guys, remember, we sanctioned medicine going into Iran, and then the top court at the UN said, you can't do that. That's against international law, and people are dying as a result of you sanctioning medicine going into Iran. So what did Trump do? scolded the court and pulled out of it and kept sanctioning the medicine going into Iran. Now in the case of Syria, they're like, oh, you know that oil that you have? We're going to take that. That's, we're going to do that. <laughs> that's not a thing. That's not an option. That's not something that's on the table. And actually, Assad was in the news recently, and he was like, he was saying like, well, at least now they just admit it. <laughs> When it came to, like, Bush, for example, sure, one of the reasons we went to Iraq was for the oil, but they never said it. They were never like, oh, yeah, that, well, obviously we're stealing the oil. They never said that. They would put the politician's facade and the tap dance around it. He's like, well, at least the dude's honest. At least he's telling you what he's actually doing. Because then what happens, guys, is that says to the rest of the world, like, the emperor has no clothes. And you guys think this is the world leader? Are you kidding me? Y'all better plan on your own. That's really the message it sends to the rest of the world. And you've seen this now quite a bit in Europe, where, like, the European leaders are kind of getting together on their own, and, like, they're making real leadership role decisions that used to be more in the realm of they would default to the United States. But now you have, like, uh, Angela Merkel and Macron and Trudeau, and th they all get together, and they're all like, okay, well, what are we actually going to do? Because they know that the emperor has no clothes, there is no real leadership in Washington. Now, I'm not saying it was a good thing that the U.S. was making those decisions in the first place, because we had no right to make these really global, superpower decisions and, you know, override everybody. But it is telling that at a certain point, when you go too far, when you're just too clear that you're totally lawless and rogue, that you can no longer keep the facade going. There's no squaring that circle anymore. It, you've gone too far. And when you're out there regularly saying, as he is, like, yeah, we, you know, I got soldiers guarding the oil fields. Of course. Of course. You've got soldiers guarding the oil field in Syria. Syria. Well, Syria is a sovereign country. They control their territory. They control their land. They control their oil. They control their natural resources. And when you admit to war crimes, you're admitting to war crimes. <laughs> That's what you're doing. So... It's just stunning to me that we can be in this position. Now, you're getting this perspective on this show. By the way, the perspective I'm laying out for you is called the duh perspective. <laughs> what I'm saying is so obvious. It's like the most obvious thing in the world. Like, hey, you can't do war crimes and then casually admit to it. <laughs> That's so obvious, man. That's so obvious. But you won't hear, uh, okay, you won't hear a single person in mainstream media make the case I'm making. Pick your favorite host on your favorite network in mainstream media. Crickets, bitch. Nothing. You're not going to hear anything about this. Because there is a lazy default assumption that, you know, is 
part of the operating system if you're in U.S. media, and that is the rules don't apply to us. The law doesn't apply to us. Everything we – we have a decision. We have a choice. And if you say, hey, doing war crimes is bad, they say, oh, so you have a gentleman's disagreement with us. We can debate this disagreement we have. They view it as like a, you know, hey, there's two sides. Let's hear them out. It's not at all like, oh, you've crossed the line and there is no debating that. And that's where we are. Now, I will say, and there's another important part of this segment. Take a look. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Trump administration considers 14,000 more troops for the Mideast. Officials are discussing deployment that includes dozens more ships and other military hardware to counter a threat from Iran. How much have you heard about this in the media? Now, you might be saying, well, hold on, Kyle. There's a... Isn't this an old story? Because they already said, oh, we're sending 14,000 troops there. This is on top of that 14,000 that's already there. So now we're talking about 30,000 troops to protect Saudi oil fields, protect Saudi oil fields from Iran. Iranian aggression. It's not Iranian aggression. You know who's the aggressor? Saudi Arabia, as they are in Yemen, too, by the way. So we are sending our military, 30,000 Americans, to do the dirty work of rogue dictator genocider Mohammed bin Salman. Why is that okay? Why is the media not talking about this? Why is this not outrageous? Donald Trump ran on non-intervention. See, I lose my mind, guys. I lose my mind. I have to sit here every day, day in and day out. I watch the goofiest hearings of all time, the impeachment hearings, where every day it's like, I think the president made a naughty phone call, guitar. And the Democrats sit there and sniff their own farts and jerk each other off, and they're like, oh, yeah, isn't Trump bad? Oh, yeah, bro, Trump's really bad. Isn't he bad? Uh, so bad, bro. And all they do is talk about the phone call and the quid pro quo, huh? Quid pro quo? He wanted dirt on Biden. Really gross. That's the angle you chose to go after him. You absolute moron. I gave you two things in this one segment. One of them admitting to war crimes and stealing oil from a sovereign country. Another one, casually sending 30,000 total troops to protect Saudi Arabia from Iran. 30,000 troops doing something he specifically said he wouldn't do when he was campaigning. He said he was going to get out of the wars. He said the interventions are stupid. He said, let's rebuild our own country. Uh, let me check. There's been no infrastructure bill. None, 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 none. But you're sending 30,000 troops to protect Saudi Arabia? Where's the media? Where are the Democrats? Where are you? Do you want to win the next election or do you want to lose the next election? It's unbelievable how much this is botched. And it's botched because they don't believe in anything. They can't go after Trump for sending $30,000 to Saudi Arabia to protect their oil fields because they're not necessarily against it. They don't care. They don't care. So here we are. Every day, Trump's bad gets there. Oh, yes, he's so bad. Oh, did you hear about the naughty, naughty phone call? Yes, we've only been talking about it for the past four weeks, but go again. I want to hear some more about it. Oh, shut up. You're all so annoying. Oh, my God. I hate it. I hate it so much, man. It's so stupid. But here we are. I gave you two amazing news stories and developments, and none of it will be discussed by the media or the Democrats. None of it. They're not going to talk about admitting to war crimes on TV. They're not going to talk about 14,000 new troops on top of the 14,000 that are already there from the guy who said he's a non-interventionist, sending more American men and women to die in the Middle East to protect Saudi Arabia. 
beyond outrageous, man. It's disgusting. Our system's totally broken from top to bottom. And if this doesn't drive you crazy, you're not paying attention. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, guys, I got a lot more show for you. A lot, a lot, a lot more show. Um, Cory Booker released an ad that went after Mayor Pete. That's interesting. That'll be right right when we come back. Um, and then there was a shooting this, sum- this summer in Mayor Pete's home of South Bend, Indiana. And um, you're going to be surprised at just how responsible he might be for the policy failure that led to that. So stay right there. We'll be right back with all of that and much more.
Hayabayam. We have a battle of the one percenters. By one percenters, I don't mean economically speaking. I mean uh, poll-wise in the Democratic primary. So this is an adorable fight because it's utterly useless. Except maybe it's not as useless as you might think that I will explain to you. I will lay out for you. Okay, so let me find the video and then we're off. Okay, here we go. Cory Booker has a super PAC, gladly welcoming the corruption in the election, um, and his super PAC decided to take some shots at Mayor Pete. Yeah, I wouldn't have gone in that direction. <laughs> Here's all these things about my opponent, and I'm the same as that. Is that like, that's like half an ad for Mayor Pete and half an ad for Cory Booker. It's like the the Arnold Palmer, the half lemonade, half iced tea. That's what that is. It's half. Here's why. Here's why Mayor Pete is awesome, but I, I'm awesome too. By the way, don't don't do the whole like. I'm a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah. <laughs> How many times do I have to tell these clowns, man? It is an anti-establishment era. It's a populist era. Rhodes Scholar. What percentage of the American people even know what a Rhodes Scholar is? And that's your ad. Here's all these wonderful things about my opponent, but they apply to me too. So stupid. Um, now, if you'll notice, he says, for the healthcare portion, he says, expand affordable healthcare access. Expand affordable health care access. <laughs> How many weasel words can you fit in? You may as well hold up a banner that says not Medicare for all, not single payer, not universal health care. He didn't say universal health care even. He said expand affordable health care access. I mean, I'm perpetually amazed at how terrible these politicians are at politics. It is stunning. Could you imagine? Now, it's not going to happen, thank God. But if there was a race between Donald Trump and Cory Booker, oh, that would not be pretty, man. That would not be pretty. It wouldn't be pretty if it's Trump versus Biden. That ain't going to be pretty. Trump versus Warren is not going to be pretty. 
They just they keep showing over and over and over that I'm not ready for this. That's what that ad screams to me. I'm not ready for this. Now, why did he do that ad? Because that's a good question. Why is, why is he doing this ad? Well, Mayor Pete is not, like, if you really wanted to have a chance, what do you do? You go after, like, the top players in the field. Mayor Pete's, like, number four in the field. So why are you going after him? The answer is Cory Booker is signaling to the Biden campaign and to anybody who will pay attention that I'll be your attack dog if you pick me for VP. That's what this is. It's an audition to be vice president. Now, he's hedging his bets a little bit because obviously Mayor Pete's not going to like this ad, but he kind of should because <laughs> it doesn't really paint him all that negatively. But um, he's hedging his bets and saying, you know, not Mayor Pete. I'll go work for a Biden administration. I'll go work for uh, a Warren administration. Not sure Bernie Sanders would have him, (laughs) but he's signaling that, really, I will work for any of you but Mayor Pete. And he thinks Mayor Pete's not going to lose, so he's hedging his bets. By the way, if he thought Mayor Pete was actually going to win, he wouldn't attack him. He wouldn't do it. So there's a lot of, like, Machiavellian, behind-the-scenes stuff going on here. He's really auditioning for vice president. Um, So... That's how politics actually works. There are calculations like that that go into this. But ultimately, this is really weak, and I wouldn't expect any different from Cory Booker. All right, next. There was a shooting this summer in Mayor Pete's home of South Bend, Indiana. Uh, A cop shot and killed a man named Eric Logan, and he died. This story that you're about to see, in my opinion, rubs salt in the wound. This is from NBC News. They say, Buttigieg's lesson, police body cameras help Only if they're turned on. A fatal police shooting in South Bend, Indiana, was not captured by the officer's body camera, prompting understandable anger, Mayor Pete Buttigieg said. So, after this incident, after it, Mayor Pete made a whole big thing about going to the police and telling them, hey, you guys have to turn on your body cameras. I can't believe you had them off. You have to turn them on. But we have a video here of what he said beforehand. He was elected as mayor of South Bend, Indiana in 2011. Here he is in the year 2014, asked directly about the issue of body cameras. And look at how he dodges. issues, but this is also something we have to take seriously, and we are, and we're looking into it. 
but again, this is about uh, this isn't about technology any more than it's about t-shirts. This is about us. This is about our values. This is about our community. And we've got to do this together. And those of us in elected leadership have to ask ourselves of everything we're doing, is this going to drive people apart or is it going to pull us together? So first of all, notice in classic Mayor Pete fashion, there is no answer there. He is like uh, the caricature, the stereotype, the embodiment of the slimy politician. He refuses to directly answer a question, ever, ever. We've done breakdowns of it, the anatomy of a Mayor Pete answer, where we go through, here's how he doesn't answer, and it's obvious he doesn't answer when he asks these questions. Go back and watch it again. Classic Mayor Pete doesn't answer the question. Now, here's the important part. Why? Why didn't he answer? Well, usually when you don't answer, it's because you know that they won't like what you actually have to say on this and what you're actually going to do on this. So you're dodging because you think you have something to hide. So now here's where my speculation comes in. This is Mayor Pete in 2014, asked about body cameras, and he becomes Neil from the Matrix, and he dodges. Then, years later, there's a shooting in his own town, and it turns out the body camera that the cop was wearing was turned off. And that's where Mayor Pete's like, tut, tut. You better turn those body cameras on. So my suspicion is Mayor Pete, in typical corporate Democrat fashion, centrist, please nobody while trying to please everybody fashion, he said, oh, yeah, I'm for body cameras. But it was, he gave a wink and a nod to the police department and said, listen, we got the body cameras on. Just try to act right. Don't do anything crazy. But you don't have to turn the cameras on. Now, again, I want to be clear, that's my speculation. That's my speculation. But connect the dots, man. In 2014, he's asked about body cameras, and he, re- he won't answer the question, which means he's got something to hide. So my guess is he was open in communication with the police department and l- winking and nodding and letting them know, like, okay, you got the body cameras on you. Do you have to turn them on at all times? I won't say you do. I'll look the other way. But if something happens, I'm not taking responsibility for it. So it was only after a shooting where somebody died, the cop was wearing a body camera, but it was turned off. Then he comes out and says, oh, yes, turn them on. Really, really, really disgusting. And by the way, this is like, I feel like this is the perfect encapsulation of how the corporate Democrat mindset is utter nonsense. Because imagine for a second if what I said is true. He did ultimately support the body cameras on the cops, but told them you don't necessarily have to turn them on. That's like exactly what the criticism is of the corporate Democrat, is that you're a wolf in sheep's clothing. At least the Republican will be like, no, I'm not for the body cameras. Piss off. The Democrat is like, oh, yes, I'm kind of on your side a little bit, kind of. Maybe we should have some police accountability, maybe. And then it's a wink and a nod to them behind the scenes, like, they have to be on at all times, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, who am I to say, you know what I'm saying? And just so you know, there's a history of Mayor Pete in South Bend kowtowing to the white officers. By the way, there was a story that TYT broke that a black officer who raised questions about what was going on in that police department, he was fired. And the white police officers were like, boy, is it going to be fun when it's only white cops in charge again. Mayor Pete sided with them. He sided with them. Fired like the first black officer who was a leader in the department. 
So that's who this guy is, man. He's a path of least resistance type guy. He's a please the establishment type guy. And uh, look at the results. Look at the results. Here's the answer if you're asked, do you support police body cameras? Yes, I do. That should be the answer. But somehow the police department had the body cameras, but they weren't turned on. They weren't turned on. Guys, that means, in my perspective, there had to be some sort of order from the top of. Do they have to be on? I'm not saying anything. So there you go. That's Mayor Pete. And it fits in perfectly with the kind of guy we thought he was. Okay, next. We're moving on up, moving on up to the side. To be left apartment in the sky. Where's Donnie Deutsch? Where are you, Donnie? Where are you, you dumb MSNBC goon? All right, here we go. Donnie Deutsch is a mainstream media goon who has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. And he's going to weigh in here on Michael Bloomberg's 2020 campaign. in a roundabout way, yes. And I mentioned this on our last segments about uh, Michael Bloomberg, is he did a $37 million ad buy. He broke a record. He did a $37 million ad buy. Now, what does that do, guys? That's not just, you know, carpet bombing the area with your message. That's not all that's for. It's also buying legitimacy in the eyes of the mainstream media. Why? Because he's good for business. There's going to be a lot more Bloomberg money coming in. These networks are going to be flush with Bloomberg money. So does that make it more likely that a lot of the hosts on these networks are going to not lay a glove on him or be generally kind to him? Yes. Yes. They're already giving Michael Bloomberg more favorable coverage than Bernie Sanders has gotten in 2016 and 2019 combined. They're already doing that. They just, PBS NewsHour did a breakdown, an overview of the 2020 Democratic primary. They didn't even mention Bernie Sanders, and he's in second place. But Michael Bloomberg, 
at coming out of nowhere, nobody asked for this. All of a sudden, $37 million ad buy. Oh, yeah, Bloomberg's so serious, So gross, man. Um, so I like how he called him the anti-Trump there. And one of the reasons why he's the anti-Trump is he says he's boring. Yeah, you got a point there. <laughs> but when he says super competent, no, that is not true. Um, Bloomberg, effectively, is, and I'll, I'll go through it, I'll walk you through it and explain exactly why this is. So relax if you don't like the description up front. But Bloomberg is a petty authoritarian billionaire. So in some ways he is exactly like Trump. Trump is a petty authoritarian billionaire. So in the case of Michael Bloomberg, you know, every time I talk about him, I feel compelled to go down the list of policy things he did because you need to know what he's actually likely to do with power as president. He blocked a $15 minimum wage increase as mayor of New York. His number one thing that people talk about when it comes to him is the big gulp soda ban. Um, Obviously, stop and frisk as well, which he has now apologized for, but he was a vociferous defender of it when he was in power. So he doesn't actually, he didn't actually have a change of heart. He just wants to get elected. So my guess is he would go right back to believing it if he were a general election candidate or if he's president. Um, I don't know what policies he would enact in regards to that for the entire country, but when he was mayor of New York, it was bad. Um, One of the little-known facts about him that I think is really important because it shows so much about him is he banned bagel donations to the homeless. So at the end of the day, you know, you've had your bagels out if you own a bagel store and you got some leftovers, they either go in the trash or you go feed the homeless. A lot of the bagel stores fed the homeless. That's what they did because they're decent people. And he banned that from happening. Why? You're going to have to ask him why. I don't know. I, can, I see no reason why that should ever happen. You know, maybe he just didn't want, he wanted to disincentivize homeless people from being in the city at all. So it's like banning people from feeding them, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I think he gave some BS rationale like, oh, there's no regulation. It doesn't go through the bureaucracy properly. So we're going to put a stop to it. But think about how evil that is, man. Think about how evil that is. Um, At the height of the subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, he said that Wall Street executives deserve bonuses. Guys, he said this in 2010. The crash was in 2008. This was at the exact time that we learned that the U.S. government bailed out Wall Street, and then they turned around and had no rules, no strings attached, and the same people that bankrupted their companies got paid massive bonuses as everybody in the country was struggling. So they were getting paid bonuses with tax money. And Michael Bloomberg said at the time, they deserve bonuses. Why? Why, Mike? Why? They failed. I thought you believed in capitalism. They failed under a capitalist system. What are you talking about? He believes in socialism for the rich. Loot the treasury. If you're rich, loot the treasury. And it's probably because they gave him campaign contributions and whatnot, and that's why he's on their side. Um... He also wooed Goldman Sachs to come to New York City with a $1.65 billion tax break. That was in uh, 2005. He said that marijuana lowers IQ. He is strongly against marijuana. So, again, gets back to petty authoritarian. Um, And here's another one that people don't talk about a lot. But, again, I hate this one. 
he made smoking illegal in New York City parks and on beaches. So I need you to stop and think about that. That's banning smoking outdoors. So particularly in, in, in areas where there ain't going to be no secondhand smoke. If you're smoking a cigarette, you're not hurting anybody but yourself in those situations because you're outside. I mean, maybe if you were literally right next to somebody and all up in their face, sure, you can get some secondhand smoke that way. But when you're outside, it is much, much, much less likely anybody else is going to inhale your toxic fumes from your cigarette. But he decided, I'm going to ban it on public beaches, a giant ashtray, I'm going to ban smoking, and in public parks. Michael Bloomberg is the kind of guy, again, who's like, I don't like that. I don't like that, so I'm going to stop it. That's what I'm, I'm going to stop it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop it. God forbid, if Bernie Sanders ever proposed half the policies that Michael Bloomberg is in favor of, everybody in the media would call him a petty authoritarian who wants to control your life and wants big government making your every personal decision. Now, thankfully, Bernie is not in favor of these policies, so he's actually not authoritarian at all. Bernie Sanders, in many ways, is a libertarian leftist. Libertarian on social issues in the sense that it's like, get the government out of social issues, you make your own decisions. Whether it's substances, whether it's abortion, whatever it might be. Um, so he's not like that, thank God, but if it was Bernie proposing this stuff, the media would go after him relentlessly. Since it's Bloomberg, and since Bloomberg has given them a lot of money, and he's part of the same social circles, it's, oh yeah, serious guy, oh yeah, d definitely has a chance. Yet again, the media pushing a narrative as they pretend like they're just calling balls and strikes, and it's really gross. Okay. We move on, we move on. You're going to see a video here that is going to drive you crazy. There's a UK media company by the name of Joe. It's J-O-E in all caps. Um, and they decided to talk to people on the street about the cost of health care in the United States. What follows is, let's say, absolutely predictable to people who know this issue, but it's mind-boggling to anybody who doesn't know the issue of health care in depth. So if you live in the U.S., you really might not realize just how much we're getting screwed and we're getting robbed because of corporate greed. But if you are uneducated about that, well, this is going to open your eyes. And then it's called out how much thing that costs. Zero payment. Zero payment. Yeah, zero payment. No. Two EpiPens. How much do you reckon they are? 
in this country that a lot of people genuinely don't know that in the rest of the developed world you go to the doctor or you go to the hospital and you walk out and you pay zero dollars and zero cents it's free free at the point of service you go in you go out you're done now you might think because it's you're in the context of the U.S most of you watching this, so you might think like, that's crazy, but it's not. That's actually the norm in the rest of the developed world. The outlier, the wild thing, the thing that people are like, whoa, over, is our system, which has 500,000 medical bankruptcies every year. We have 30 to 45,000 deaths because people don't have access to basic health care. We have millions of uninsured people. Even if you're insured in many instances, you're underinsured. And so you could still go bankrupt for medical bills, even if you have insurance in many instances. Every single argument you've ever heard against these systems in other developed countries, the universal health care systems, the various universal health care systems, every single one you've heard is propaganda. Everyone. doesn't matter what, oh, what about the weight lines? That seems to be like the number one uh, response from people if they're concerned about moving to a system. Oh, what about the weight lines? We have weight lines too, and our weight lines are littered with the dead bodies of people who never even got to see the doctor. That's the 30,000 to 45,000 deaths. But the weight lines over there, you know how they prioritize who gets the care and who needs to wait a little bit? Need. So if you're in desperate need of the care, you get it immediately. Now, sure, if there's some elective procedure, yeah, you might have to wait a little bit. But it's an elective procedure. You're going to be all right. If you're sick, you get help. You go to the front of the line. That's how we prioritize. In this country, it's about the size of your wallet. It's about money. Just so you know, guys, it's not my opinion when I talk about our system being the worst in the developed world. 
It's a fact. There's the old World Health Organization study. Now, granted, this is old. This is from the year 2000. And according to them, we're ranked number 37 in the world when it comes to our healthcare system. Um, but I agree with you if you say that's outdated. It is. That was a long time ago, man. We're talking almost 20 years ago now. But the Commonwealth Fund always studies this, I think, every other year or something like that. And every time they've studied it, they've come back with the same response. And uh, the most recent studies find, when they study just the developed uh, healthcare systems, we're 11th out of 11. And by the way, we pay double what the rest of the developed world pays, and we don't even cover everybody. So our system is fundamentally broken. We can't afford to keep doing it like we're doing it. That's the fact that nobody brings up. Oh, my God, how can we afford a Medicare for all system? Our system right now is more expensive, $5 trillion more expensive over the, co- over the course of a decade. We have to move to a system like they have in the U.K. or like they have in France or Canada. Now, there's little differences. There's, you know, public funding of public institutions. That's how they do it in, in the U.K. That's the NHS. So it's a public insurance system but also all the doctors are employed by the government. That's the way they do it there. It's a fully nationalized healthcare system. That's one way to do it. Now, you might say, oh, my God, that's too far left. According to many studies, they have the best healthcare system in the world, the NHS. Um, but still, if you say, oh, I don't like that, okay, well, then a French system is public funding of private institutions. So it's still free at the point of service, but the, you know, the doctors could be privately employed, and you could have, like, private clinics, private hospitals and whatnot. So there's different ways of doing it, but the connecting tissue between all the developed countries is free at the point of service. And that's, that's everything. That's super important. So this is why I do this show, man, because I really don't think that people in the U.S. understand just how many people in the U.S., a lot of you guys do because you're viewers of this show, but I don't think many people really understand how screwed we are, how we're getting robbed at every turn. And it is, without a doubt, because of the nature of the system, which is for profit. There's no doubt about that. Just think about it rationally for a second. If you have a middleman and their whole goal is, I have to make a profit for my shareholders. I have a fiduciary responsibility to my shareholders. This is the nature of the system. I have to make a profit. How will you make profit as a health insurance company? You'll make more money if you deny more care. So the incentive structure is a giant problem. They effectively are a price-gouging mafia middleman. That's what private health insurance companies are. That's just what it is. So why wouldn't you want to get rid of that rapacious for-profit middleman? Have a single payer, a single insurer, which is the doctor, which is the government, and everything's free at the point of service. In our private system, 80% of the money you pay into your health insurance company goes to actual care. 20% goes to everything else. In our uh, Medicare system, it's about 93% of the money goes to actual care. And that would mean 7% goes to everything else. Do a math in my head, you like that. (laughs) So it's more efficient, it's more ethical, and it's just better all around, man. It really is. I get it. Right now, we're way far off from that system, so it's hard to conceive of it. But do not have a lazy status quo bias. Because I really, and I really mean this, guys, I believe it to my core. I think that that's a stupid mindset, like genuinely idiotic. 
What if we do it this way now, though? So how can we not do it like this anymore? You change it. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Yeah, you change it. In 1959, we still had segregation legal on the books. Then, uh, you know, fast forward to the 60s, and we got rid of it. At least on paper, I mean, there's still, unfortunately, a large number, you know, way more segregation than we should have. Um, but there was a time when women couldn't vote. And then we changed it. Now, you could be one of those people beforehand going, but right now women can't vote, and women have never been able to vote here, so that's never going to change. We make a change. We had alcohol prohibition, then we got rid of it. We can do it. We can make changes. It's not impossible. And it really annoys me when so many people, even well-meaning people, have that lazy status quo bias of like, it's not like that now, so, yeah, I know, we should change it. <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? Yes, you're going to have a giant fight on your hands. Yes, you're going to be going up against the behemoth, which is a well-funded monster, which is the for-profit health insurance companies and the corporations, and they're going to lobby like crazy to keep it as is. All the more reason to fight harder and change it. Guys, here's the sad truth. The U.S. healthcare system is the laughing stock of the world. Are you comfortable with that? You're getting screwed in so many ways. You're getting screwed in so many ways. We all are. Did you know the U.S. is the only country that doesn't have paid time off by law? Did you know that? The only country that doesn't have paid time off by law. We need to spread this knowledge, spread this information. I don't usually say stuff like this, but share this video if, if, you know, if you're watching it. Share it with all your friends. Put it on Facebook, put it on Twitter, put it wherever. Because we've got to get the word out there, man. We've got to get the word out there. You're being robbed. You're being screwed. And in so many ways, our system is broken. And you're just part of a giant machine that doesn't care about you. We can change that. We can have paid vacation time by law. Wouldn't that be lovely? We can have a living wage, because right now we don't. We can have Medicare for all, healthcare free at the point of service. Guys, it's just a matter of priorities. Medicare for all saves money. Yes, it'll come out of taxes, but right now you're paying private taxes, premiums, copays, and deductibles, and you're paying more in private taxes. So why not pay public taxes and pay less and get more covered? Seems kind of like a no-brainer on that front now, doesn't it? So we absolutely can do it, and we should do it. There's no reason we can't do it. If we can afford, are you kidding me? Seven wars, we're bombing seven different countries right now. We're still in Iraq. We've been there since 2003. We're still in Afghanistan. We've been there since 2001. And now they're trying to add more countries to that list. We can invade everywhere. We can bomb everywhere. We can do an $80 billion increase in the military budget, which we just did. Which, by the way, just the increase in the military budget could pay for free college for everybody. Just... Free college is about $60 billion. We did $80 billion increase in the military spending in one year. So we could pay for all that, but we can't have basic things, basic things that people need. We could pay for corporate welfare like crazy, but we can't have basic things. We could bail out Wall Street to the tune of $14 trillion, but we can't have basic things. No, we can't have those things. And now consciousness is rising, and people are getting educated on this stuff. And it's time we all do the right thing. Excuse me. We all do the right thing. We all get out there. We all fight for it. And that's why the answer is Bernie 2020. He's the only one that's really serious about taking things on 
in the way that might actually work. So we have the answer. We have the vision. We know what to do. It's just a matter of implementing it. I don't want to be the laughing stock of the world anymore when it comes to our healthcare system. Okay. Took a long time on that story. I am going to fall behind, bitch. All right, Joe Biden. This is a video that Joe Biden definitely doesn't want you to see. It's from 2015. And it's a pretty different Joe Biden, if I don't say so myself. Take a look. We need to commit. We're fighting for 14 years. We need to commit to 16 years of free public education for all our children. We all know that 12 years of public education is not enough. That's 2015 Joe Biden agreeing with Bernie Sanders and saying we need to do free college, four years of free college. Now, is that Joe Biden's policy where he is now, running for president in 2019? No. No. He reeled it back. Now it's two. And I'm not even sure the funding mechanism of that and how much is actually paid for. But here he is saying four years. What happened, Joe? What happened? See, it's funny, because if you go back and you watch old school secular talk clips, um, I w- I'll say in all the segments about Joe Biden that he's actually left of Obama, and he's dragged Obama left on many issues. And I half like Joe Biden, because there were times where he's acted, there are times he's been a standard corporate Democrat, but then there's also times he's bucked orthodoxy and been to the left of them. So I had a streak of, like, not flat out supporting Joe Biden, but liking him more than other standard corporate Democrats like Hillary Clinton. Um, but see, now you get a glimpse as to why, how, how can I say those things? Because my mindset was at the time, based on the evidence at the time, and he was saying stuff like this. So what happened, Joe? What happened? I don't know. He's running for president. You know, maybe he thinks the only way to win is for me to be more serious and be more centrist or whatever. I don't know what he really believes. Does he actually believe in the four years of free college? Does he believe in the two years, which he's proposing now? Is he a hardcore centrist at heart? Is he a lefty? Well, his record overall is way more corporate centrist neoliberal. Um, But we have this real serious problem on the left, and that is Biden did the reverse of this year, but in many instances you'll have people that will say they agree with you if you push them hard enough, and then when push comes to shove, will they actually agree with you? It's like when we pushed – relentlessly sign on to the Medicare for All bill, sign on to the Medicare for All bill, sign on to the Medicare for All bill. And we got over 100 Congress people to do it. You even have people in the Senate, like Kamala Harris was like, I'm the first person who's signing on to it in the Senate, and I'm proud of that. But then here's the question, guys. When push comes to shove, would they actually vote for it? So the Democrats, so many of them are just two-faced, man. At least the Republicans are up front, like, I don't agree with you, and I hate it. <laughs> The Democrats are like, no, bro, tell me, I'm with you, bro, tell me. Anyway, here's.
here's my new health care plan, here's my new college plan, which is a lot weaker than the one I said I agreed to. Done playing around with these guys, man. We can't accept this from our elected officials. We need somebody to actually represent our position. No waffling, no weaseliness. Just take the right position and fight. And obviously Joe's not going to do that. You know, it's amazing that this video exists where he's like, yeah, free college, duh. What are you talking about? Up to 16. We have K to 12, make K to 16. What are you talking about? Yeah, I agree with that Joe Biden. <laughs> and that Joe Biden should be the one running now. and should be fighting for those things, but he's not. There's one dude who's been consistent all along. His name's Bernie Sanders. Never wavered. Always been a fighter, always been on the right side of stuff. But these two-faced Democrats where you could find them saying both things, it's just disgusting, man. Now, by the way, this isn't license to check out of the system. Because unfortunately, I think that's the reaction from many people. The reaction from many people is like, oh, well, then there's no point in any of this stuff. No. The reaction should be the opposite, which is, oh, now we got to get even more involved and we got to push them even harder and we got to not take no for an answer. But, man, it is wild to see, isn't it? I reckon you could find videos of Joe, of, uh, Joe Biden saying other things that are reasonable. But now, when the spotlight's on him and when he's actually trying to gain power, all of a sudden, give me that milk, give me that toast. Milk toast all day long, baby. That's what it is. So Joe Biden doesn't want you to see this video. He does not want you to see it because it paints a very different picture of the guy now. And the guy now is a lot worse. Okay. Let me take a final break. And then when we come back, I'm going to tell you the story of our elected leaders and world leaders acting like hormonal teenagers, hormonal teenagers, which is not, which is funny, but also scary. And I had a mix of emotions and reaction to it. So stay right there. We'll talk about that and much, much more.
I really don't know what to make of this next story, if I'm being honest with you all. Um, Apparently, our world leaders are basically acting like hormonal teenagers these days. (laughs) So uh, there's this big scandal. Justin Trudeau was like semi-smack-talking Trump while talking to other world leaders. And then Trump responded in classic Trump fashion where he like left an event early. Here, I'll just show you the CBS segment, and then we'll discuss. President Trump Wednesday canceled a news conference and left the NATO summit early after a hot mic caught other world leaders appearing to laugh at his expense. Ben Tracy is in London with the details. They posed for a family photo, but 70 years into the NATO alliance, this family seems a bit dysfunctional. So this will be actually my last meeting? President Trump canceled a formal press conference today after dropping this rhetorical bomb on Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Well, he's too fast. Mr. Trump was angry about this video of Trudeau apparently mocking him while talking with French President Emmanuel Macron and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson at Buckingham Palace Tuesday night. with President Trump and his team. Trudeau said he was talking about President Trump's sudden announcement that next year's G7 summit will be held at Camp David. Every different leader has teams who every now and then uh, have uh, their jaws drop at uh, unscheduled surprises like uh, that video itself, for example. You know, it's funny because everything is so mild. Like, everything that happened there is so mild. Like, basically, Trudeau was smack-talking Trump because he was like, Man, he took a random 40-minute press conference, and I got places I got to go, and I was like, what's this? And his team's jaws, you saw it drop to the floor as he's doing this impromptu press conference. That's all Trudeau said. And then Trump, in response, is like, he left the event early. He had a press conference actually scheduled, and he was just like, no, if they don't appreciate me, fine, then I'll I'll go. I don't don't need to be here. (laughs) So in a weird way, I know this might sound strange, but like, I think both things are super relatable. Now, there's a good argument to be made that, hey, man, these are world leaders. You want them to be better than regular people. You want them to be above that. You want them to be like adults taking on serious tasks and not getting into petty personal drama. That's true. But at the same time, it's relatable on both sides. Like when I see Trudeau, like that was mild smack talking. Like, oh, we took an impromptu press conference, and that was, like, rude, and I had places I had to go to, and his team couldn't even believe he was doing it. Like, whoa, man, you're so unhinged. Like, that's relatable. The smack talking is relatable. Like, to, to say, like, man, this person did this, this, and this, and I'm like, why'd you do that? Yeah, those are the conversations that all people have. Everybody. 
everybody does that about one thing or another thing all the time. It's office politics. That's what it is. Um, so that was relatable, Trudeau doing that. But then Trump's reaction is also kind of relatable because <laughs> he's like, he feels like slighted. He's like, what, man? Like, fine, say something to me or whatever. Like, don't, don't say behind my back and get with your little clique of the other world leaders and act like mean girls and be like, oh, isn't that crazy? And so he's like, all right, fine, then I'll just leave. I don't need to spend time with you. I'm going to do a press conference with you. No, why? You're just talking smack about me, so I'm out skis. Fine. You know, you know, you weren't too happy with the time we spent together? Okay, I won't burden you anymore. I'm gone. That's kind of relatable, too. <laughs> I can see myself reacting like that in a situation where, you know, there's some other world leader talking trash about me, and I'm the president of the U.S., and we're supposed to meet with them later, and I'm like, I'm good. No, I'm good. I need to hang out with you or do another press conference. Like, whatever. Go ahead. Go, go back with your little click and keep talking smack. So it's actually relatable on both counts. And we've all been on both sides of that equation. We've been the person talking the smack, and we've been the person who catches wind of it and gets offended by the smack talk. We've been both of those. So, um, but listen, man, that the main, main takeaway is it's mean girls all day long. It's, it's, they're hormonal teenagers. That's, that's what it is. And this goes right back to the old idea of Donald Trump ripping the mask off of what actually goes on. Now, if you say to me, yeah, but Kyle, Obama didn't act like this. True, he didn't act like this outwardly, but you don't think he was smack-talking behind the scenes, and you don't think they, you know, they're human beings that are dealing with interpersonal psychology and office politics? Of course they were dealing with it. They always deal with it. Absolutely. Everybody does. It's just how you deal with it. Obama's thing was he just pretends like he's above the fray, and he never shows his cards. Trump's thing is, I got all my cards on the table. But the funny thing about Trump is, I don't think he realizes that he's like that. I don't think he realizes he's got all his cards on the table. I don't think he realized that at all. <laughs> Not even a little bit. <laughs> he thinks like he's being, and it's funny because with Trump, he thinks it appears macho, but actually it kind of appears like the opposite. Again, it's relatable, but it does also appear like you're a petty, insecure person as well. When you're like, fine, I'll just leave. Relatable, but definitely petty and insecure as well. And he wears that on his sleeve. But he thinks it's the opposite. It's, it, you know what it reminds me of? Back when Fox News had one of their debates in the 2016 primary season and Megyn Kelly was going to be a host of the debate and Trump was basically like, no, I'm not going. Everybody's like, why? He's like, she's not fair to me. Now, his supporters were like, Trump's so strong, man. He's so strong. But everybody else in the country was like, that's kind of weak as hell, man. That's super weak. Like, oh, you might get asked some tough questions. You're going to run and hide. Bitch. Like, what a man like so it's funny because with him he's incapable of understanding the perception of it how people are going to view it he just thinks like i'm being macho and i'll say no way but overall the media is making it seem like oh man trump is definitely like hurt by this but he's going to spin it now in the aftermath he's going to spin it like yeah i stand up to the rest of the countries and that's why they don't like me that much because They've been taking advantage of America, and I'm putting a stop to it. That's what he's going to say moving forward. And that can actually help him. <laughs> he will find a way to spin it where it'll be, he'll make it seem like, like, yeah, this is what I promised to do. I'm holding them accountable. That's why they don't like me. So it's weird when you see the media go all, on, all in on this, like, <laughs> the rest of the world is laughing at us, and Trump's like, 
Trump's like an outsider and stuff. That's not as much of a burn as you think it is, man. I hate to tell you. <laughs> That's not as much of a burn as you think it is. But anyway, there you have it. Hormonal teenagers running the world. Okay, next. The scandal that wasn't. Professor Pamela Carlin was testifying at the impeachment inquiry, and uh, we're, on, we're now on day 7,312 of this inquiry. I hear it's going very well. Um, and she said something here that made Republicans lose their minds, including the First Lady, Melania, angrily like tweeting at her because Barron's name was referenced. But let's take a look, and then we'll discuss. give you one example that shows you the difference between him and a king, which is the Constitution says there can be no titles of nobility. So while the president can name his son baron, he can't make him a baron. Thank you. The founding. I think that's correct. And if I can just say one thing, um, I want to apologize for uh, what I said earlier about the president's son. It was wrong of me to do that. I wish the president would apologize, obviously, for the things that he's done that's wrong, but I do regret having said that. Thank you, Professor. Okay, so she apologized right after. I don't know if that's because there was already a backlash over it, and that was much later in the hearing, or if that was, like, immediately after. I really don't know, but... I get the the notion of don't talk about the the kids of the president, especially if they're really young and they're not political at all. Like, I get that. But she said nothing personal at all. She just said, oh, the Constitution puts limits on the president so he can name his son Baron, but he can't appoint him a Baron. That's just like a tangential reference to him. Is tangential the right word? Sounds like a really smart word. I may have nailed it, or I may have absolutely flopped there. <laughs> I don't know. But, like, she didn't, there's nothing bad there. There's nothing bad there. She didn't say anything personal against him. She didn't, like, call him out. She didn't do anything that was untoward. It's another good word. God damn it. I'm either on fire or a total idiot and misusing words. She didn't do anything bad there. Like, it was really mild. That's not – there was nothing directed at him. It was just like a – it was just an explanation of something about how the Constitution limits powers. That's perfectly reasonable. But the Republican reaction was to go nuclear, man. Nuclear. They went off skis. I went to the Fox News um, YouTube page, and multiple videos immediately after where they're all going, How dare you, man? How could you? And it's like, you guys aren't even mad. Like, why are you pretending? Nobody's actually mad about that. Really? That's, you're mad about that. No, you're not. No, you're not. It was just an offhanded reference. Like, are you not allowed to even acknowledge that the president has a son? Because that's close to where, where we're getting here. Like, that's close. They're drawing that line in a real goofy spot, aren't they? 
to the point where, like, if you say Baron exists, no, leave Baron out of this. Just not acknowledging he exists, that's nothing. That's nothing. Everybody knows he exists. Why can't you acknowledge his existence? Uh, don't, don't drag him unnecessarily into stuff and don't make stuff personal and don't go after him. But you didn't really. It was an offhanded comment. It's not a big deal. They're pretending like it's outrageous. And this actually gets to a giant difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Is that the Republican Party, there is like a concerted effort to strategize and pump out narratives. And when they decide on doing something, they overwhelm everybody and they do it. And the Democratic side is, as a general rule, massively disorganized and incapable of all getting on the same page and hammering something home. Um, but it's hilarious to watch it with the Republicans, particularly when they're so off base that it, it's obvious that it's, it's feigned outrage. It's feigned offense. Like, it's so clear that it's that that you're like, oh, so you guys really don't care about anything. You're just playing a game. And in this game, you can go, gotcha, gotcha. But, you know, anybody who actually has a functioning brain is going to watch that and be like, I don't think that was too bad. No, I don't. Now, I will say this, though, the final point is, like, but, yeah, Democrats, you're going to get stuff like this. You want to know why? Like, you're opening up the door to this because in your impeachment inquiry, it's been nonstop – Trump is really bad, and he did really bad things. He made a phone call, and the phone call was bad. He was trying to get dirt on Joe Biden, and he was holding up aid. Quid pro quo, quid pro quo, quid pro quo. And then they had uh, some experts the other day go, I think this is impeachment worthy. Trump did something impeachment worthy. And the Democrats were like, ooh, somebody said it's impeachment worthy. Ooh. And by the way, at the end of every day for the impeachment inquiry, you have the Republicans do their oppo research on whoever the Democrats had testify, and it's always like, well, this dude was tweeting like two days into Trump's presidency about how we should be impeached. So why would you act like this guy's objective? He's a partisan hack. But it's vice versa, too. Whenever, you know, the Republicans have somebody that pushes their narrative, the Democrats will go, oh, look what this person tweeted. This person was big on the Trump train and donated money to him and did this, this, and this. So it's all like it's just a partisan hack show for everybody to watch. Where, you know, the Democrats are acting like everything devastating, walls closing in, bombshell. It's another bombshell. And then nothing happens. And the Republicans, no matter what, the, nothing to say at all here at all, ever, nothing, ever, bad, wrong, nothing, nothing, nothing. And it's just like, I already, like, before the day even begins, I know how the day is going to go. <laughs> but here we are. This is, like, this is the Republican effort, I think, to deflect from all the other stuff now, where they can go on the offense, but to do that, they're feigning outrage over a non-story. And it's hilarious that, it's also hilarious that she, like, apologized. Like, you didn't say anything bad. Shut up. Like, <laughs> shut up. The only thing that's bad is that your entire testimony is like, Trump's really bad. He did bad stuff. And it's, again, that you guys know, the reason why it gets under my skin is it's never like the actual real serious crimes of Trump. It's always like the procedural stuff. You exposed another member of the club because you wanted dirt on Biden. You didn't give the weapons to Ukraine. That's so important to arm Ukraine. <laughs> like it's always the unserious, like Washington, D.C. bubble stuff they go after him for, so that's why it annoys me. But yeah, she didn't say anything wrong here, but she's annoying as hell for her entire testimony, so I hate everybody in politics, man. <laughs> 
I really do. This entire beach drinker is reminding me of how I just despise them all. Okay. Let's talk about Iran. I do have a video for this too, I think, yeah. Okay, here we go. There are widespread protests going on in Iran right now, and we finally have some video of it, even though... It's been going on for weeks, but we haven't had video of it because they had shut down the internet for a while. Well, now apparently the internet's back, and um, here's some amazing footage from Vice News. Leaked videos show brutal crackdown on Iranians. Anti-government protesters took off across Iran after a massive hike in fuel prices was announced on November 15th. They're chanting about how oil's too expensive for the poor. Protests reached 100 cities and towns. 731 banks, 140 government buildings were torched. Government shut down the internet for nearly a week. When the internet was restored, you saw protesters getting beaten up by the cops. As soon as people reconnect to internet, we were all bombarded by videos. But this time, all the videos were full of blood. It was full of death. I always publish the videos of people anonymously because I know that it's a huge risk for them. Thousands of people have been arrested, it says. Several people were killed, including security forces. Amnesty International estimates 143 were killed. Iran's top leaders blamed the crackdown on foreign governments, including Israel and the U.S., state-sponsored rallies announcing the protest was held. So it's bad, man. Things are on the brink over there. Now, I reached out to my buddy who's from Iran, who still has family in Iran. He's obviously following all this stuff very closely. And I asked him, you know, break down for me exactly in your mind 
why this is happening, how we got to this point, what the main gripes are of the protesters. And I'll sum it up for you here. He said, uh, the most important factor is the economic situation, which comes from massive corruption in the country and obviously U.S. sanctions, which have been devastating. Uh, he says, the second thing is that the reform project no longer is able to control dissent. And they're kind of more and more aligning with the hardliners in the government the more the people hit the streets and the more people are protesting. Um, he said the government's foreign adventures in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon as well, while the price of it, the people of Iran are suffering, that's another big issue. They're spending quite a bit of money in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, and meanwhile, everything's kind of like crumbling at home, and people are like, hey, why don't you actually look after the people in your own country? Um, apparently, the government is becoming increasingly authoritarian. There's an increased crackdown uh, for hijabs, by the way, and increasing political prisoners, increasing Internet censorship. It was down for about a week, as you saw there. Uh, they closed down critical newspapers and stuff like that. And then increasing fuel prices was the moment that people said enough is enough. They jacked up fuel prices massively. And some people in the West are mischaracterizing these protests and saying, oh, it's all about uh, the fuel prices, but they're missing the point. That was really what, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, basically. That wasn't like, that's not the only thing this is over. It's over a hell of a lot more stuff, including what I just laid out there. Um, by the way, let me see if I could find the thing he said to me earlier. Yeah, this is fascinating. The inflation rate, the inflation rate is over 200%, which they had in one year. And then there's also constant inflation of over um, 30% in the last few decades. So massive job losses because all the country's industries have closed down and um, stuff is now being imported from China. China doesn't pay for Iranian oil with cash. They only offer other goods. And they've been the only major buyer of Iranian oil for a long time, obviously because of the sanctions. And um, so it's a mess. Everything there is a mess. And obviously the response from the government is to just blame Israel and the U.S., and the U.S. is certainly partially to blame for the sanctions, no doubt about that. But there's also massive corruption in the country, and the hardline government is not interested in social freedoms and really not doing the right thing and helping the people. And they're still doing investments in Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq as the country's like collapsing. So, and then finally, he says, when people made pro Reza Shah chance, that's the son of the former former dictator. Um, it's really because the country went through massive economic growth during his time. It's not about the monarchy or his grandson. People just want that economic growth and prosperity back. So, you know, it's a stable, it's a relatively stable region, area in the region, country in the region that is now going in the other direction. And obviously what we're trying to do is kick that down the road more and actually destabilize more because we want the government to change. We want there to be regime change. Um, and, you know, it's, a, it's such a tough situation because, yes, this government is abysmal. This government is terrible. And they repress people like crazy. But, like, what, what would come after it? 
what would come after? We've seen this play over and over and over in other countries, and oftentimes what follows is worse. I hope that there can be reform there and there can be a change of the government through peaceful methods on their own. And obviously I also hope that we in this country stop sanctioning them because the economic sanctions really are also one of the catalysts and one of the main reasons that there's widespread unrest because people are really struggling economically. Whoever the next president is, let's hope it's a Democratic president who wins the next election. On day one, they should get back in the Iran deal. On day one, they should lift all the sanctions. And we can have a partner for peace, and we can bring stability back to the region, and we would stop the suffering of the Iranian people, the hardcore suffering of the Iranian people, pretty quickly if we could do that. Obviously, they still have problems, internal problems they have to deal with on their own, and I hope they open up the political process a hell of a lot more than they are now. The Grand Ayatollah and the Revolutionary Guards still make a lot of the decisions, and the elected government doesn't have as much power as they should. Um, but I hope that all that can get taken care of in a peaceful way, because I don't want to see another country collapse and implode and people suffer and people die even more than they are now. Um, it's just a heartbreaking situation across the board. I wish them the best, and, you know, as somebody who's an outsider looking in, I can say the part for which the U.S. government is responsible, we're trying our best to get a government in there which will not totally suffocate the regime. Okay. All right, we're done, baby. Love you guys. I will talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. We're out. Peace.